In meeting here uh, this evening in these brand new refurbished facilities at M.A. McPherson, I'm reminded though that we meet here on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kurin Nation, and we pay our respects to them, their elders and their descendants. Without further ado, I'm going to introduce our Vice-Chancellor, Professor Margaret Gardner, AO, who will introduce this evening and our guest speaker. Please, Margaret. Um, thank you, Robin, and uh, thank you, Minister. Um, welcome, everyone. Let me also acknowledge the traditional owners. Um, this is an audience with the Honourable Rob Hulls. Um, it's presented by Alumni Relations, and we're very proud that we have one of RMIT's most eminent alumni, uh, the foremost law officer of the state, uh, the Honourable Rob Hulls, who is the Attorney General. He began his career here in law at RMIT um, and completed through what was the forerunner of what is now the law course here, but was then the Article Clerks Program and completed in 1982 before being admitted as a barrister and solicitor uh, by the Supreme Court in 1983. Um, at the time when the Minister was engaged, this was the pathway into the legal profession and as you can see, very many distinguished and senior lawyers came through that particular path. From 84 to 86, uh, Mr. Hulls was a solicitor at the Legal Aid Commission in Melbourne. He moved to Queensland, and from 90 to 93, was the federal member for Kennedy. Uh, in 1993, uh, Mr. Hulls was chief of staff to the leader of the state opposition, and in 1996, he was elected to the Victorian Parliament as the member for Nidri. He was first appointed Attorney General in 1999, and subsequently again in 2002. And in, after the 2006 Victorian election, he was appointed again as Attorney General uh, and as Minister for Industrial Relations and Racing, and became, of course, the Deputy Premier in 2007. He has been very generous with his time with our alumni. Uh, Minister launched the Juris Doctor program here in 2007 in the old Melbourne Magistrates Court, which is part of RMIT. And today he'll speak about his experiences from his extensive career in law and politics. Um, we're very pleased that he's such a significant leader in our community, that he's done so much to contribute to the law and to the advancement of social justice in our community. And in many ways it's fitting that he is therefore the first eminent speaker in this lecture theatre, which is named for Ethel Osborne. And Ethel Osborne was indeed one of Australia's earliest and prominent uh, speakers on behalf of women. She advocated for women in the clothing and printing trades. She was um, early in what was called industrial hygiene, which was occupational health and safety. Uh, in its earlier form, she's, uh, she represented Australia to the League of Nations. She advocated for women generally in a whole range of areas, and she also um, advanced the, first, the field of dietetics, which of course set up in this place and became the president of the council of what was the Emily McPherson College. And this lecture theatre is covered in purple and named after her in recognition of her contributions to social justice, the cause of workers, uh, and uh, the cause of Australia as a representative. So I think you are indeed the fitting first speaker in this lecture theatre. Yes, Uh, well, thanks very much indeed, Margaret, and can I um, welcome everybody here this evening. I too start by paying my respects to the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, and um, it is uh, fantastic to be here. And 
Um, <clears throat> Margaret has touched briefly on my um, my history. I did uh, um, VCE or HSC, um, and my marks weren't good enough actually to get into law. I was passionate about wanting to do law. Um, my father was a lawyer. I was one of seven kids. We had a you know very large family that used to sit around the the dining table at night and talk about social justice issues and um, I thought that uh, the law was for me because I thought it was a great opportunity to assist people who are disadvantaged in our community who couldn't get access to justice but my marks weren't good enough to get into law so I uh, did a year of um, arts at uh, La Trobe University <coughs> and uh, then was able to transfer over to RMIT after a year of arts and uh, I was pretty keen on doing the Article Clark course because as I said, my father had a legal practice and so I had uh, a perfect place to do articles and it was a great course because you could actually um, go to lectures in the morning, work uh, in a uh, legal office during the day, get practical experience and then there were lectures or tutorials at, uh, at night. So it was a very practical course for anyone who actually wanted to practice law and I certainly did. I was admitted um, on the 1st of March 1983 uh, and then on the 5th of March 1983, I, um, I went overseas. Uh, didn't really have a gap year when I was at school, but this was, uh, I guess, my gap year. I decided after studying for that period of time, um, I wanted to go overseas. And I borrowed some money from the, from the bank. I had no dough and uh, went overseas for, for nine months. And it was the most amazing education. Uh, and I realised when I came back that there was more to life than walking up and down Collins Street in a, in a pinstripe suit as a lawyer. And my father wanted me to take over his practice, but um, seeing what a big wide, wide world there was out there, I decided instead to do legal aid work. Um, and so I applied for a job with uh, the Victorian Legal Aid Commission and uh, worked at uh, the Legal Aid Commission's Glenroy office, which is now in Broadmeadows, but Glenroy for, for some time. And then they opened up a new office in, uh, in Frankston. And uh, I worked there for, for quite some time. Uh, and then I saw a job advertised uh, working with an Aboriginal legal service in Mount Isa in North Queensland. At that stage, uh, my parents' family were living in Mount Martha on the Mornington Peninsula. And uh, I said to my father, look, I've applied for a job in, in Mount Isa. And he said to me, what the bloody hell do you want to work in Mount Eliza for? And I said, no, no, not Mount Eliza, Mount Isa. Uh, and he had to dig out an atlas to see where it was. Um, and uh, anyway, I, I uh, flew up to Mount Isa and um, I remember arriving one February day and 42 degrees hit me in the face when I got off the plane and I thought, my God, what sort of heat wave are they having here in, in Mount Isa? It was no heat wave, I can tell you, it was just a, an ordinary day in Mount Isa. It's a pretty hot place. A couple of days later, I found myself on a place called Mornington Island and uh, after this if you get home have a look at an atlas and see where Mornington Island is it's a little island in the Gulf of Carpentaria uh, and there I was sort of a you know a, a middle-class young lawyer from Melbourne uh, in outback Queensland on an island in the Gulf of Carpentaria representing uh, Aboriginal people I'd never met an Aboriginal person in my life uh, but I was thrown into it straight away and uh, I can remember standing outside the Mount Isa sorry, the Mornington Island um, police station and saying to the coppers, well, where's the interview room for my clients? And they said, interview room? Are you kidding? All your clients are sitting under the guilty tree. <laughs> and I didn't quite understand that. Um, and there was a big tree in the front yard of the police station and in 42 degrees, it was the only place you could get shade. 
but the police were of the view that anyone who sat under that tree must be guilty, because the coppers, having charged them with an offence, uh, thought they were obviously guilty. And so that was the only place I could interview my clients, under the tree in the front of the police station. Police station, which, by the way, ended up being the courthouse, um, because they just moved a few chairs and tables around, and uh, it went from being an interview room, where people had been interviewed by the police, to a courtroom where, supposedly, independent justice was being dispensed. I thought there's something wrong here, like there's something really wrong, and I decided uh, that I would stay in that job. My plan was to just do it for 12 months. I ended up staying, uh, doing that job for five years. Uh, and I've got to say, it was uh, quite an extraordinary experience to see how our justice system was operating in the light, late 1980s, early 1990s, uh, in outback remote Queensland, um, being just so uh, foreign to uh, people that were appearing before our court being so culturally insensitive, it was just an extraordinary experience. To give you an example, true example, I can remember at one stage sitting in the back of the court waiting for my case to come on uh, and it was the Mount Isa Magistrates Court and it was a coronial inquest. It was an inquest into how a particular death had occurred. Um, it was a simple single vehicle collision that occurred on an outback road in North Queensland, the only witnessed to that collision was an old Aboriginal bloke who happened to be sitting on the side of the road. So he was called into the witness box to give evidence as to what occurred. And he looked around and he saw the white magistrate, the white coroner, and he saw a, um, a police prosecutor who was assisting the coroner, a couple of white lawyers, and he just looked at everybody in the witness box and he said, I'll plead guilty. Uh, which is sort of a funny story, but it's also sad. I mean, it basically was his view that if you're an Aboriginal person and you're taken before a court, whatever the reason, you must have done something wrong, so he was going to plead, uh, plead guilty. Uh, I decided then and there that um, as important as the work uh, I was doing was, uh, it was even more important to get involved in changing the law and to make our laws more culturally sensitive. So I decided to run for politics, run for, uh, run for parliament which is a pretty big decision. I was only 32, I think, 32 years of age. But, uh, and being from Melbourne, being in a, a state that I wasn't overly familiar with the, the politics of, it was during the Jockey-Peterson era, so you can imagine how extraordinary that was, um, but decided to run for federal parliament and sought endorsement, got endorsement, and ran for the seat of Kennedy, which, as we've heard, is uh, at that stage was even bigger than it is now. It was 772,000 square kilometres, so it was a pretty big electorate. Um, and uh, as we're about to go into an election, um, uh, you know, it's interesting going from being uh, a non-politician to a politician and the transformation that that, that, uh, that brings about. I can remember uh, during the election campaign, I had my own legal office in Mount Isa. Uh, I was campaigning as well, and an Aboriginal, old Aboriginal bloke came in to get some legal advice from me. Uh, and I gave him, of course, the best possible legal advice about his particular matter. And as he went to leave, I said to him, Oh, by the way, mate, you'll vote for me, won't you? Uh, you know, next, uh, next week's election. He said, Oh, yeah, you're a good bloke, I'll vote for you. I thought, Oh, that's good. And as he walked out of my office, I thought, Well, hang on, before you go, mate, are you on the roll? He said, Oh, well, what's the roll? I said, Oh, mate, you've got to be on the roll to vote. Um, so uh, he. He uh, was handed a form and he filled in the form and sent off and I thought, well, if I win by one vote, I know where that vote came from, because uh, he certainly indicated he was going to vote for me. Sure enough, I got elected and uh, it was an amazing experience. I said 32, 33 years of age, being from Melbourne, elected to the federal parliament in outback Queensland. Um, one of my first constituents was the 
old Aboriginal bloke that had seen me um, a couple of weeks beforehand. He walked in and he congratulated me on being his, uh, his new federal member. Um, and uh, he said, I've got a problem. Can you, can you help me? I said, mate, I helped you as a lawyer. I have no doubt that, you know, um, I can be of assistance to you as your new federal member. What's the problem? He said, I got this fine, mate, for failing to vote. <laughs> so, so uh, it's a true story, true story. So, so the transition from being a, a lawyer to a politician brings about some, uh, some quirky moments. But, but it was an amazing period because I was there during that Hawke-Keating leadership challenge, uh, for those of you who um, are historians when it comes to, to politics. And uh, you can just imagine how extraordinary that was. I mean, you walk into a caucus, You've studied politics, you're interested in politics, and all of a sudden some of your heroes are work, you're working with, and you're in the same caucus room as people like, you know, uh, Bob Hawke and, and Paul Keating, and, and then all of a sudden you're thrown into um, a moment in history when you're asked to vote. Um, you know, it's happened recently, um, where, you know, the caucus has decided they wanted a new leader, um, and you as a young kid have to actually cast your vote. And I was lobbied on... Uh, an extraordinary basis on a daily basis, almost an hourly basis, from you know people like Ros Kelly and and uh, you know John Kerrin and and all these names that you'll remember. And uh, the lobbying, I, I just had enough of the lobbying, and I went home one weekend back to Mount Isa, and uh, I had a, a a mate who was um, a judge actually, a district court judge in Queensland. He was around uh, having a barbecue, and the phone just kept ringing, and he said, "Aren't you going to answer your phone?" And I said, "Oh no, mate, the lobbying's just..." Uh, Unbelievable, and uh, we're having a couple of beers out the back. And over the answering machine came this voice Good day, Rob. It's Paul Keating here. Can you give me a call on 06 777 And this judge spat his beer out and he said, Shit, how often does he ring you? And I said, Oh, just on weekends when he wants a bit of an economic advice, he gives me a call. But, but it was an amazing, an amazing period. Um, and uh, in 19, so I was there from 1990 to 1993. I got beaten in 1993 by that. As I said, that road scholar Bob Catter, uh, and I was actually in between the two Catters. Old Bob Catter held the seat for a quarter of a century, held it for 25 years. Uh, I held it for the Labor Party for just one term, from 1990 to 1993, and then um, Bob Catter, the bloke who's there now, won the seat in 1993. And again, a true story. He won it on the back of preferences of a party called the Confederate Action Party. Uh, it was a prelude to One Nation, I expect. And I, I only tell you this just to give you um, some overview of the nature of the electorate that I, was, that I was living in. The Confederate Action Party had policies of, I kid you not, policies of compulsorily arming all Australians. So it would be illegal to walk into Emily Mac unless you had a six-shooter on each uh, And also, uh, no, not no land rights, no rights for Aborigines. No rights for Aborigines. And they actually got more votes in the 1993 election than the Greens and the Democrats combined uh, in Kennedy. So it gives you some sort of uh, impression of the type of uh, electorate it was. And they, of course, preference to Bob Catter. And Bob Catter um, uh, is now history. Well, it's not history. He's part of history, I guess. He's, uh, he's been there ever since. I decided then that um, my future wasn't in, uh, in Mount Isa, it wasn't in, in Kennedy, uh, but I still had a taste for politics and I decided to move back home. Despite what you might read about the Labor Party, it's not as though people came flocking to me and saying, oh Halsey, you've done such a great job in Kennedy, here's a great job for you. Uh, that didn't happen. I uh, saw a job advertised in the, in the Australian, uh, which we used to get probably a week later than everyone else in, in Mount Isa, 
uh, and uh, it was Chief of Staff to the Leader of the Opposition in Victoria. Um, and that uh, happened to be Jim Kennan at the time, the late Jim Kennan, who was also an Attorney General in this state. I applied for the job. I had never met Jim before, but I found out he was a Geelong supporter, and so am I. So on my CV I put PS, I'm a Geelong supporter, and I think that might have got me over the line, because I, I got the job. <laughs> And I was only in the job for uh, two weeks, two or three weeks, when Jim resigned and John Brumby took over. And John kept me on as his Chief of Staff uh, and uh, we became very close friends. We still are very close friends. And then the seat of Nidri came up uh, in, um, in 1996 um, and uh, I sought pre-selection for Nidri and I won the seat in 1996. We were in opposition for three years and then um, my dream came true when we won government in 1999 and I was sworn in as Attorney General and it was an amazing experience to have all these ideas, uh, all these views about social justice, about um, equality before the law, about modernising our law, being able to turn those ideas into reality was really quite extraordinary. And one of the first things I did when I became Attorney General, based on the experiences I've told you about, um, including my experience with, um, with Aboriginal Australians up in North Queensland, was to introduce uh, Koori Courts here in Victoria because I was of the view that I didn't want to see the same thing I saw in Mount Isa occur in Victoria. And I wanted to have a justice system that was culturally sensitive um, and was owned by all Victorians, including uh, Aboriginal Victorians. And the reason I wanted to do that was because I took the view that you just can't stand by as a community, um, let alone as an Attorney General, and allow a section of our community to be jailed at 12 times the rate of non their non-Indigenous counterparts. Aboriginal males are still jailed across Australia at 12 times the rate of their non-Indigenous counterparts. Aboriginal kids are jailed at 16 times the rate of their non-Indigenous counterparts. Now we can stand back as a community and say, well, nothing we can do about it, I must be bad. So let's not even try and make our justice system uh, more culturally sensitive. Let's not even try and introduce reforms where Aboriginal people take ownership of the justice system. Or you can be innovative and try new things. And I set up a series of uh, of Koori Courts here in Victoria as a, on a trial basis. Uh, a lot of people poo-pooed them, a lot of people said this is uh, outrageous and you know, you've got to have a one-size-fits-all justice system and how dare you have a system that has a specialist court. Uh, well, I can tell you that they're now a permanent part of the DNA uh, here in uh, Victoria, legal landscape in Victoria. And uh, not just that, uh, we now have a number of Koori Magistrates Court. We have Australia's first ever Koori County Court and Australia's first ever Koori Children's Court and they've been independently evaluated and I can tell you they are working. They are making a real difference in turning people's lives around. The rates of recidivism have just dropped dramatically uh, in those areas where Koori Courts exist. The adherence to court orders has increased dramatically and general ownership and respect for the justice system has uh, changed dramatically amongst the uh, Aboriginal community here in Victoria. And it's because you have Aboriginal elders sitting with magistrates, um, you have uh, a round table discussion rather than the magistrates sitting uh, on high, if you like, you have um, 
you know, a police prosecutor, Aboriginal elder, respected person, uh, often victims, um, the, um, uh, the Aboriginal defendant, uh, his family, all working out uh, the underlying causes of why criminal behaviour is occurring uh, and they work out a plan to ensure as best uh, they can that the person doesn't uh, recommit offences and they are working. Uh, so uh, the view I take about our justice system generally is that where it can, it should act as a positive intervention in a person's life path. Yeah, in a whole range of areas, early intervention is the key. But where that early intervention hasn't occurred and people come in contact with our justice system, my view is that the justice system should try and be a positive intervention in their lives. And so the Curry Court example and how that's worked has been transposed into other areas as well. Family violence, for instance. We now have specialist family violence divisions of our courts. Why? One in four women will be subjected to family violence at some stage during their lives. In the past, they've been reluctant to come and report it. Why? Because the justice system has re-traumatised them. Police weren't taking it seriously. You didn't have specialist trained magistrates. You didn't have support services there at the court. Now, with specialist family violence divisions of our courts, more and more people, more and more women are actually reporting family violence. That's because they're getting holistic support as a result of the specialist divisions that we have. Mental health. We now have, for the first time in Victoria, a mental health court. Many of you probably don't know about it. It's called the Assessment and Referral Court here in Victoria at the Melbourne Magistrates Court. Uh, the fact is that many, many people come before our courts because they've committed offences, because there are mental health issues. You can either lock them up and throw away the key, bad luck, or alternatively, you can try and address the underlying causes of their criminal behaviour. Mental health courts, where there are a whole range of assistance there at the court door, including um, you know, assessment and referral into appropriate programs, uh, I expect when that's independently assessed, we'll have the same sort of positive results as our, uh, as our Koori courts. We have a drug court out of Dandenong. Again, uh, independently assessed, uh, having incredible results in turning people's lives around. Uh, these aren't cheap, by the way. Like They're pretty expensive, but they are making a difference. Um, so the reason I raise these things is, and we also have a neighbourhood justice centre, by the way, in Collingwood. For those of you who haven't had the opportunity, go down and have a look at it. If you want to see the face of 21st, just, 21st century justice uh, in Australia, in this state, go down to the neighbourhood justice centre in Collingwood you'll see something that I expect you've never seen before and won't see anywhere else in Australia. It is a one-stop justice shop that has a whole range of support services in the one building uh, where people can get assistance and the underlying causes of their criminal behaviour can be addressed. Uh, yeah, we've got to be tough on crime and people, there are some really bad people out there and absolutely our justice system should come down hard on them. But uh, you know, we also need to have a system that addresses the underlying causes of criminal behaviour as well. Go down to the Neighbourhood Justice Centre on any particular day, you'll see somebody who's charged with, uh, for instance, a burglary um, or breaking into someone's car. Um, in the past, our justice system would have said, OK, we convict you of this uh, breaking into someone's car and we sentence you to a term of imprisonment or some sort of uh, particular order. What happens at the Neighbourhood Justice Centre is 
they try and find out why a person's committing these offences. They're broken into a car because they've got a drug problem they need money for drugs. Why have they got a drug problem? Often there's mental health issues. Why are there mental health issues? Uh, often there's family violence that has occurred uh, at an early stage. Why is there family violence? There's homelessness, um, unemployment issues. All those matters, uh, employment issues, homelessness, drug and alcohol treatment, um, all those issues can be addressed at the one place, at the one time, at the Neighbourhood Justice Centre. Uh, and if you have a look at uh, crime rates in Collingwood, dropped dramatically. Uh, if you have a look at adherence to court orders at the Naval Justice Centre, improved dramatically. Recidivism rates dropped dramatically. You don't read about it on the front page of the Herald Sun, but these things are making a difference, are making a difference. And the reason I raise this is because we are about to go in an election, as you know, and we will have uh, a law and order debate. And, uh, you know, it's pretty simplistic to say, uh, judges are soft and people who commit offences should be locked up um, and that's the way you solve uh, crime. And mandatory sentencing, take away judicial discretion and give judges the power, uh, in fact make it mandatory for them to impose certain uh, penalties for certain uh, offences. Uh, I'll always, um, always uh, speak out against mandatory sentencing because uh, number one, <laughs> simple reason it doesn't work, <laughs> any jurisdiction that has mandatory sentencing their crime rates haven't dropped. Like, it just doesn't work. It's a fraud on victims. Um, if you're charged with an offence and you know you're going to get a mandatory penalty for that offence, regardless of whether you plead guilty or not, you're not going to plead uh, guilty. You're going to plead not guilty and run a trial and take your chances. There are 90,000 sentences handed down our courts each year. 90,000 sentences. The majority of those are pleas of guilty. Uh, a very small minority of those are ever appealed. An even smaller minority of those are overturned uh, on appeal. It's not to say judges are always right, they're not. When they get it wrong though, we do have an independent appeal process uh, that can correct the situation. But you have mandatory sentencing, of those 90,000 people, the majority of whom plead guilty, well, why would you plead guilty? You may as well take your chances. Um, so it's a fraud on victims, it doesn't reduce crime rates, and it interferes with the independence of our judiciary. Uh, in a truly democratic society, you know, you've got to have the separation of powers, you've got to have an independent Judiciary you shouldn't have politicians being judges, jurors, and executioners. You know the reality is that a true democracy depends on an independent uh, justice system. But I expect that there will be further debate about uh, mandatory sentencing in in the not too distant future. Some of the other reforms I've been uh, involved in as Attorney General, including um, equal opportunity reforms, we've just had legislation uh, passed through both houses of parliament that allows um, systemic discrimination to be addressed for the first time. Again, don't read about this on the front page of the Herald Sun, but this is groundbreaking reform. People who have been discriminated against in the workplace, people who have been discriminated against any aspect of their lives in the past, have had to be tough enough, be gutsy enough to actually make a complaint. Often that's against a very powerful employer, uh, and often people have been too intimidated to do that for a whole range of reasons. Um, We've now changed the whole focus of our Equal Opportunity legislation to allow the Equal Opportunity Commission to be actually proactive in investigating systemic discrimination. So they can actually, uh, on a systemic basis, address discrimination where they believe it occurs. Um, and we've made sure that there is now a positive duty on uh, employers and the like uh, to ensure that they have policies in place that address discrimination. I think that's pretty good, uh, pretty good reform. Um, we've also changed uh, something like 60, 65, I think, pieces of legislation 
in Victoria to end discrimination against people based on their sexual orientation. Uh, again, criticised for that when that legislation came in, but how can we say that we live in a truly democratic society when we had 60 or 70 pieces of legislation that deliberately discriminated against people based on their sexual orientation? Like, it's just a nonsense. Uh, and some of the bits of legislation, like, made it illegal for, for instance, um, uh, you know, uh, gay partners to visit each other in hospital, for instance, if one was ill. Like, just nonsense legislation. Um, so we changed all that, uh, all that legislation. One of the things I'm proudest of, though, is that we are the only state in Australia that has a charter of human rights and responsibilities. The reason I'm proud about that is because um, I, I, I find it hard to believe that in the, the year 2010, uh, Australia is, I think, the last, one of the last nations in, in the Western world that doesn't have a human rights instrument, a national human rights instrument. Uh, I'm also proud about it because it was so vehemently opposed by the opposition uh, at the time. Uh, and we, we still got it through both Houses of Parliament. And I, uh, in um, arguing for a Charter of Human Rights, and I know there are a lot of doomsayers out there who think it's going to be the end of the world as we know it, and they argue that it's like an American Bill of Rights and it's going to take power away from the Parliament and give it to you know, unelected judges. It's just a nonsense, right? The sky hasn't fallen in, um, and there hasn't been a plethora of... Uh, of legal action in relation to the Charter, but it has changed the way government works. It means that every single piece of legislation that's introduced into the Parliament has to have a statement of compatibility in relation to human rights obligations. And if the government wants to pass a piece of legislation that is incompatible, it has to be transparent in doing so. It has to actually make a statement to the people of Victoria through the Parliament. So it has changed the way that uh, government operates. Um, and I dare those who oppose the Charter to explain to me and to the Victorian public which of the rights set out in the Charter they don't believe Victorians are entitled to. Like, it ain't rocket science. The right to a fair trial. Surely all Victorians are entitled to that. The right to be free from torture and inhumane treatment. I would have thought every Victorian's entitled to that. The right of children to get uh, a fair uh, hearing uh, when they're brought before courts. I would have thought everybody would agree with that. The right to be free from forced work. I mean, none of the rights enshrined in our Charter are anything more than what every Victorian believes every other Victorian should be entitled to. So, um, and the reason I raise the Charter is because, again, we're about to go into an election and the opposition have said that they will repeal the Charter if they were, they were elected. Um, so I think you know, it is important to, to understand what's actually in the Charter um, and what rights are set out uh, in, the, in the Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities. And I guess I'll conclude on this note because um, I'm sure there are heaps of questions that people might uh, want to ask. Uh, I've also tried to modernise uh, the law uh, and I've also, uh, in doing that, tried to broaden the pool from uh, from which I get and the Cabinet gets to choose members of the judiciary. In the past, we had a largely um, uh, white Anglo-Saxon male-dominated legal profession. Uh, I'm pleased to say that there have been uh, many appointment of women to the bench, 
It's important as Attorney General that I um, choose and recommend the best and brightest uh, to sit on our benches, but we kid ourselves that we think the best and brightest are just white Anglo-Saxon blokes from private schools, as bright as they are. <laughs> we also need to, need to broaden the pool. Uh, I've been criticised uh, for that, and in fact I can remember when I, when I advertised uh, for expressions of interest for the judiciary some years ago, never happened in Victoria before, it was just a secret little society where there'd be a few discussions behind closed doors and people would just be appointed to the bench. I decided to be more transparent, advertise the, the positions. I remember getting a letter from one particular white Anglo-Saxon male from a private school who, who said to me that he thought it was outrageous that I had broken with tradition and advertised for expressions of interest for the judiciary. This had never been done before in Victoria's history um, and uh, he was dismayed by the process and I was not to treat this letter uh, as an application for the judiciary, but if I deemed it appropriate to appoint him, he would be more than happy to accept. <laughs> but I kid you not. Um, without telling you who it was, I can say, I can say they're not on the bench. Uh, um, but, but also in modernising the profession, I received more letters, more emails, a fair bit of hate mail, when I raised the prospect of removing wigs in our, uh, in our court system. Uh, I just thought, you know, in this day and age, uh, having blokes mainly <laughs> wearing horsehair in, in court was probably not um, the sign of a modern, uh, a modern judiciary. A lot of hate mail about that. Um, I made it quite clear to those who wrote to me that I was more than happy for barristers to wear wigs in the privacy of their own homes, but I wasn't sure that the courts were the appropriate places to, to wear wigs, but um, ultimately that is a matter for, uh, matter for the judiciary. Um, the final, um, final point I'll make is that uh, anyone who's doing law, and I say this to, to, to legal students, uh, thinking about doing law, um, I would urge them to look outside the square. My experience at RMIT and the practical course that I undertook at RMIT showed me that there's more to the law than wor working on the 41st floor of the Rialto, you know, in some large law firm. Yes, they do, they do good work, but people should also think outside the square and have a look at how you can use your education, um, you know, your legal background uh, to work in other areas of public good, public service, whether it's a community legal centre or, or legal aid, or the Victorian Government Solicitor's Office, or the Department of Justice in policy development. There are a whole range of areas where you can use the education that you've been privileged to have to assist more disadvantaged members of our community. And um, as we do go into election, people often say, oh, well, you know, um, you've been pretty lucky and you've, you know, you, you uh, um, undertook a law course and uh, why is it that you end up on that side of the politi uh, this side of politics rather than the other side of politics? I often get asked that question. Uh, I remember vividly when I was in Mount Isa and I was campaigning, and uh, John Hewson was actually leader of the opposition uh, at the time. He's probably probably a good bloke, and I can remember John Hewson coming to Mount Isa and speaking about what he believed encapsulated liberal philosophy. Many people will disagree with this, but this is what he said, and he was leader of the Liberal Party at the time. And um, it inspires me almost on a daily basis to continue working hard for social justice reform. He said this, he said, if we as a community reach down to assist the most disadvantaged members of our community, all we're doing is dragging the rest of society down to their level. Now that's what he said, and I remember it word for word, 
because it astounded me. And it's really ensured that I do what I can in the privileged position that I have, and it is privileged, I, I absolutely understand that, to try and make reforms to our justice system that are going to make a difference to people's lives, that are actually going to uh, assist us as a community reaching down to assist the most disadvantaged members of our community. Because once you stop doing that in this game, you may as well give it away. Once you lose the enthusiasm for social reform in this gig, get out. Because, you know, there are other people who can do it better than you, other people that deserve a go. Uh, I'm not tired yet. Uh, I'm still as enthusiastic as, I've got to say, the day I was sworn in uh, as Attorney-General. But ultimately, whether I'm enthusiastic enough is for other people to judge on the 27th of November. So thanks for listening and I'll try and answer any questions you might have. Minister is uh, used to being uh, accosted uh, verbally, of course, uh, in uh, much more difficult circumstances than the polite uh, circles of the university. So please, let's have some questions. I'd like you to talk about the fortune, and that's the thing that I care about most that you've achieved. Um, yeah, well, it's interesting you raise that because. Um, uh, the issue of abortion is something that I personally referred to the Law Reform Commission uh, and the Law Reform Commission made a whole range of uh, recommendations in relation to abortion law reform um, and uh, I then uh, took the bill into the Parliament uh, and it was a conscience vote uh, and people voted according to their conscience and the bill got up uh, and uh, I didn't vote for the bill, I didn't vote for the bill personally. Um, and people often say, well, how come you didn't vote for the bill and yet you introduced the bill into the parliament or you sponsored the bill through the, through the uh, Law Reform Commission? I think um, Maxine Moran actually second read the bill, but, but I gave the reference to the Law Reform Commission and I made it quite clear that's the, that's the nature of my job. As Attorney General, um, I have a role in law reform. I have a role in getting the best possible advice uh, and the Law Reform has made a whole range of recommendations in relation to a whole range of issues. Um, uh, but when it comes to the issue of abortion, yes, I gave the reference. Uh, yes, the Law Reform Commission made uh, recommendations that many think were groundbreaking, and the law uh, has changed uh, in Victoria. Um, but from a conscience point of view, I didn't vote for the bill, um, and I'm not going to go into a whole range of reasons why uh, I didn't, but that law reform got up, uh, and many people are very happy that it did. Uh, others aren't so happy. Um, but, you know, I don't expect that any future government is going to repeal that piece of legislation because people didn't vote along party lines, not by any stretch. It was a conscience vote. Thanks. Yes, sir. Well, one of my main concerns relates to, to the, uh, the upper end of this. Society, particularly concerned about the, what is seen to be a bit of a demise in the, the role of the Ombudsman, and in particular concern in relation to the lack of accountability for officers of the Parliament. Um, many, there are a number of complaints in relation to various harassments, intimidation from very senior officers of government, which are not being properly considered uh, for complaints that have been made against them. The Parliament itself is unable to address these issues for fear of concerns of politicisation of, the, of those officers themselves, yet there are 
real administrative issues and in some cases that should be properly addressed and have a proper process of being heard and considered. Now, the role of the Ombudsman is restricted. He cannot look into administrative matters to deal with certain officers of the Parliament. I'd like to know what efforts you're intending to implement, should you be re-elected as Attorney-General in the next term, to implement this sort of accountability at that most senior level. Yeah, well, we actually um, had a, uh, a review in relation to accountability and um, 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 mechanisms in place to address um, inappropriate behaviour um, and indeed corruption uh, should it occur. And Elizabeth Proust, as you know, former head of DPC, conducted a review in relation to uh, all the bodies we had in place in Victoria. And she said that by and large they were working well, but there were some gaps in the system. Um, and there were gaps in relation to MPs. There were gaps, she thought, in relation to the judiciary that needed to be addressed. Um, and there wasn't enough um, consultation and interaction between the bodies that existed. So she recommended, uh, made a number of recommendations, including the setting up of a, a PIC, a Parliamentary Integrity Commissioner, to deal with uh, members of parliament. Uh, she also acknowledged that the government had um, gone a long way down the track in setting up a judicial commission. Um, and she also recommended setting up a VIAC, which is uh, Victorian Integrity and Anti-Corruption Commission. Uh, the government said that she'd set out the roadmap and we would follow that roadmap. We won't necessarily, she hadn't dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's, but she'd set out a roadmap to address the gaps that existed. Uh, in implementing her recommendations, or following that roadmap, we have um, introduced into the Parliament already um, a Judicial Commission to address uh, the gap in relation to the judiciary. It went through the lower house, um, it hasn't gone through the upper house. Parliament will be prorogued, as you know, and we'll have to reintroduce that bill if we are, if we are re-elected. Parliamentary Integrity Commissioner to address the issue of politicians. Um, a, an exposure draft of that bill was actually released a couple of days ago. Uh, in fact, it was late last week, it was Thursday or Friday, together with a discussion paper and a ministerial code of conduct draft. Um, and we're seeking feedback from people uh, until the 11th of March. And the um, VIAC, to address all the other uh, issues and have a holistic approach to, um, to uh, inappropriate behaviour, uh, and or corruption, um, that uh, will be uh, implemented um, next year if we're re-elected with a start-up date of uh, 2012. So she made a whole range of um, observations in relation to the Ombudsman. Um, she was of the view that there should be changes to the role of the Ombudsman um, and that there should be an anti-corruption overarching body uh, we've agreed with that uh, and work has been done now to implement those uh, recommendations. So um, part of it's already been done, exposure draft is out, um, judicial aspect of it, um, legislation went before the lower house and the rest of it will be implemented uh, with a start up date of 2012. What about the Well you have, you have uh, particular issues in relation to the uh, Electoral Commissioner um, and um, uh, the fact is that the Electoral Commissioner uh, um, is independent, is an independent body 
um, and well, you, you say unaccountable. Um, the, the electoral commissioner and you have personal issues in relation to the electoral uh, commission, and I think you've either written to me about that or you've certainly spoken to me about that. I don't know that this is the forum to air uh, that particular issue. Okay, another question. Yes, down the Firstly, I'd just like to thank you for coming to speak with us this evening. Um, Do I... you really mean that? No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> just not a polite spokesman, it's okay. <laughs> um, because I, I've, um, had the, I've been very fortunate to do some work um, in relation to the Aboriginal justice movement oh, good. Um, in the past, and think obviously that the Koori courts are just uh, fantastic. And was wondering if you might be able to speak a little bit more about the Aboriginal justice agreement, some of the other initiatives that have been yeah, look, the Aboriginal Justice Agreement uh, is something that I signed with uh, a couple of other ministers um, not long after we were elected. I think it goes back to 2001. And it's about uh, using uh, government in a more holistic way to address um, Aboriginal uh, disadvantage in a whole range of areas. So um, there are programs that include um, scholarships, for instance, for um, Aboriginal students to work in the Department of Justice. Uh, there are a whole range of initiatives, including, for instance, um, uh, a bus uh, in some regional parts of Victoria that can actually uh, assist uh, people ensuring that they turn up when they're on bail. Um, a whole range of initiatives that, that, for the first time, involve a whole-of-government approach. Uh, and we've had the Aboriginal Justice Agreements mark one, uh, there's been a number of uh, iterations of the Aboriginal Justice Agreement. There's buy-in by uh, all departments within government and we have regional forums. Um, in fact, I think I'm calling into one uh, tomorrow or Thursday down in, down in Sale where heads of departments meet with Aboriginal leaders to talk about issues of concern to them and we attempt to address them in a holistic way, right across government. As exciting as that is, as exciting as that is, uh, you put that together with uh, a group that I set up called the Victorian Aboriginal Economic Development Group, uh, which involves the private sector and government addressing um, lack of economic opportunities for Aboriginal Victorians, uh, and the government announced uh, substantial funding for joint ventures, uh, for partnership arrangements with the private sector, uh, for uh, microfinance opportunities for Aboriginal businesses. Uh, you put the Aboriginal economic development issue together with the Aboriginal Justice Agreement and we are making real inroads. Uh, but you don't turn around hundreds of years of disadvantage and alienation in just 10. You know, it is a, it is a long road to hoe, uh, but we are making a difference. Um, we also introduced um, new um, uh, legislation which was passed just, just recently in relation to native title here uh, in Victoria, Traditional Owner Settlement Bill. Anyone who's familiar with the native title legislation will know that because of the way Victoria was settled, um, there is really no chance uh, of uh, there being a um, uh, successful um, outcome for Aboriginal people under the Native Title Act. This Traditional Owner Settlement Bill changes the way Native Title is dealt with in Victoria uh, and addresses um, 
uh, Aboriginal land justice issues in a whole new way. I got Mick Dodson, who was an Australian of the Year a couple of years ago, to head up a group to come back with recommendations to government as to how we can address land justice in Victoria uh, without having to go through the court process. Um, he made recommendations, that turned into legislation, which again was only passed a couple of weeks ago, and I'm very pleased to say uh, that uh, the reason I'm down in Gippsland on, um, uh, on Thursday and Friday is that we're about to sign off on the largest native title settlement in Victoria with the Gunai Kurnai. Uh, and it's all come about as a result of this groundbreaking legislation that we've introduced here in Victoria. So you've got the Aboriginal Justice Agreement, you've got the Economic Development Group, and a new way of doing um, native title, land justice here in Victoria, and we are taking giant steps in relation to reconciliation uh, here in Victoria with, uh, with Aboriginal Victorians. Again, not stuff you'll read about on the front page of the Herald Sun, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I, uh, as excited as I am about going down to the Gunai Kurnai settlement, and the Federal Court will be sitting down there, Justice North will actually be sitting on country uh, on Friday morning. It's going to be a pretty exciting day. Uh, good luck trying to get any media interest in it, because, you know, uh, they just don't think there's um, readers who are interested in this sort of stuff. Well, you know, uh, I 